start off with some review just to kind of get ourselves back in the game. So what what is the the end game, the end goal of Christian parenting? Okay, very good. So could you give that to me in one word just to make it like super memorable? Okay, discipleship. So it's all about discipleship. Now this is like so basic and so easily forgotten. Like so, so easily forgotten. I'm raising, I don't know, a successful person, a rich person, a healthy person. It's so easy to get distracted and take something that's secondary and make it primary. So I'm just going to kind of hammer on that nail again tonight, that it's the end game is discipleship. And if you get that one down, that will shape and actually transform the way that you parent your kids. Okay. Same in church life. Say you go to a church. What's the mission of the church? Um, I don't know. uh, Feeding the poor, um, preaching the gospel, holding services, marrying and burying, um, good deeds. Like people are, that's all peripheral stuff. The center of it is making disciples. That's the center. And when you get that down as a church, then there's clarity. But when you forget that, there's ambiguity. So what's the end game of Christian parenting? Discipleship. Right on. Now, why does this need to go from one main goal to... um, Let me reword that. Why does this need to go from one of many goals to the central goal of parenting? Why does it need to go from one of many goals to the central goal of parenting? Yeah, so let's say you're, you, um, you want your kid to do well in school. Or you want your kid to connect well with her peers. Or you want your kid to learn how to take responsibility for their finances and resources. But if your personality tends to gravitate to one of those and not to others, you tend to forget. And you raise a kid that's lopsided. Or you start to look at those different subsets of parenting through secular eyes, or you end up with an imbalanced person. Whereas if you see all of those, just like in the Christian life, as tied back to discipleship. So think of your Christian life as an adult. You're a Christian. Well, are you not supposed to steward your money for God's glory? Yeah. Are you supposed to steward your time for God's glory? Yep. Are you supposed to steward your talents and your skills for God's glory? Yep. So you know that. It's the same with parenting. All of those different areas of a child's life has to be stewarded for God's glory. And if you don't emphasize that and make that clear, even on a subconscious level, the kids will pick up on that. And they won't really understand. I don't think a lot of, I think a lot of Christian kids and a lot of Christian churches do not actually understand that the primary goal that their parent has for them is that they would be a follower of Jesus Christ. They, they actually don't know that. It's so basic, but it's like missing the forest for the trees, as we say. So this is why we need to come back to this. So that's just a couple things to kind of get us back into the game.
So today I was, uh, I jumped online, I usually check the, the headlines, and the Windsor Star, check this out folks, this is earth shattering. There's a, an article that says a new report, and of course they named the, the experts, a new report is now suggesting that kids need to swap screen time for green time. Did anybody see that? So there, there's a, the experts are now telling us that kids are spending too much time looking at screens and they need to get outside more. Now, I bring that to your attention because it's a great illustration of how professionalized parenting has become. But really, it's just common sense. Like, if that's, if that's radical for you, you have a big problem. <laughs> if it takes an expert to tell you that, you have a big problem, right? It's just so basic. But the problem is, is that we live in a culture where things that are, should be either intuitive or specific to the Christian faith, obvious, have been forgotten. And so now we have experts telling us things that are presented in a profound way, but they're not really profound at all. What's the next big study going to say? You should spend time with your kids. You should discipline your kids. You should have conversations with your kids. This is like parenting 101. But so many times people just forget that and get bogged up, get kind of distracted and get off in the weeds. So what we're going to do tonight, that's just to kind of get you back in the game. We're going to move on. So last week um, we talked about, uh, I shared with you some of my story, talked about values. Those are really important, some of the values that I've sought to bring to my parenting. And tonight I want to talk about the role of the church. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about offering instruction and discipline. I'm going to share some thoughts on education and then just some best practices that have been rattling around in my head when it comes to parenting kids of different age groups. And then I want to give some time for some questions. So some of you submitted questions last week and I read through them and have some thoughts I want to share with you. Um, and then if there's time, you can even ask some questions orally. But let's, let's, um, let's move outside of the home and just um, I want to share some things with you that I, I think are really important with regard to uh, church life. And again, for those of you just coming, I haven't read a single book, read a single article, checked out a single blog in order to prepare for this course because I don't want to be sharing stuff that I haven't done or haven't thought about. So this is just all from up here. This is just observations and things that I've thought about over the years. I, I asked my wife today for some input. I asked my boys for some input on the way here tonight, and I'll just share some of that with you. So I want to talk about uh, the role of a church. So once you've established the values that are going to drive your parenting, and I think you need to know what they are and talk them over with your spouse and be clear on them. Now we have the blessing of the church, and what role does the church play? So this is all part of answering the broader question of how do I proactively build a child that is a follower of God, as best as I contribute to the equation. So let me just start off by saying this. The church is not directly responsible to raise your child, you are. We're not taking that responsibility. We don't respond super well to parents who come to us and say, my kid's off the rails, it's the youth group's problem. My kid's off the rails, the Sunday school teacher obviously didn't do their job. We have a supplementary role, but it's not our job to raise your kids. Nor are we going to interfere 
with the decisions that you make as a parent, unless, of course, they're blatantly in contradiction to Scripture. So there's lots of flexibility. We come from different backgrounds. There's a lot of different ways to slice it. And you're going to bring your own personality, your own background, your own culture, your own age, your own experiences, your own marital situation into the task of raising kids. And as I was looking at the question, it struck me, like we have people here that are raising kids as a husband and wife. We have people here that come from, um, that are raising kids from like split families where both spouses have kids. We have single parents. We have people with older children. We have some people that don't have kids yet. So there's lots of, lots of diversity. But I do want to talk to you about the fact that while the church is not directly responsible for raising your child, you are, guess what? The church is on the same mission that you're on, which is to make disciples. And so this is why the church can be a huge asset to you in raising your children. So it's not their job to do it, but they have the same mission that you have. Isn't that great? So collectively, when we come together, we want to make disciples. And some of the disciples that we want to make are your children. So being that we're on the same mission, why not take advantage of the resources that God's church has in order to be a blessing to each other? If you check out... 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and following, you'll, re, you'll be reminded there of the whole discussion that Paul has about the church as a body. Think about that image for a moment. The church is a body. We're called the body of Christ. And each part of your body plays a role. So uh, have, have you ever had the experience where you, you get a little cut or a bruise and all of a sudden that's all you're thinking about? So I cut myself right here a couple weeks ago. I was washing a glass and just came apart. And my hand got cut open. Now it healed up fairly quick, but the last two weeks at church, I've been like, not sure if I want to shake hands. And I, put your hand out, Phil. So when people come, I, 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 you're not even thinking about this, but I come in like that and I grab the guy's hand or the woman's hand because if he squeezes my hand like this, it still hurts. Maybe not so much now, but it did on Sunday. So it's funny how I'm not, I never think about that part of my hand until it's injured. And then all of a sudden, all my attention's on it. I don't want that to hurt. I don't want that to be injured more. I don't want it to open up. So the, 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 this image of the church, the more important parts, the less important parts, Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians, everybody plays a role, even if you're a knuckle, even if you're a baby toe. Everybody plays a role in the life of the church. And when we all kind of come together, and we do what God has called us to do, we actually put Jesus Christ on display in his physical absence. So Jesus is walking the earth for 33 years, ascends to heaven, and he's replaced with the church. And collectively, we put Jesus on display. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. We are the representatives of Christ. We put Christ on display. And so, if you're wanting to raise your kids, why would you not expose them to other people that are trying to put Christ on display? If the end goal of Christian parenting is making disciples, and those disciples are disciples of Christ, and the church together puts Christ on display in a greater way than you can individually or I can individually, because I might just be a knuckle, why would you not involve the church so that, the, so that your children can see a broader portrait of Christ's presence on earth. Why would you not do that? So, for example, you might be a mouth in the church, like I am. You speak a lot. 
But your kids need more of Christ than just someone talking at them. You might be a servant, and someone who's a mouth may not be super gifted in that area. Or you might have the gift of generosity. Or you might be a discerning person, the kind of person that can offer wise counsel. You might gravitate towards truth. You might gravitate toward grace. There's grace people and truth people in the church. And as our children are exposed to the broad gifts and backgrounds of the church, I think they really do benefit. So with that in mind, I want to share with you six things that I've sought to encourage in my children and in my parenting because I believe that everything I've just said is true. So here's kind of how this has worked for us. First one is this. We've sought to demonstrate 100% commitment to involvement in the church. So 100% commitment. So this is all under the category of the church. 100% commitment to involvement. Why? Because we're legalistic? No. Not because we're legalistic. But I want my kids, even without me saying it, to see that I believe that the church is absolutely fundamental to their spiritual development as a child of God. I just know this hands down. I don't have enough gifts, time, skill sets to be the only one that disciples my kids. I just don't have it. I don't have, a, I don't have enough skill sets in my life and in my story. But there's other people in the church that do. And collectively, they all help to fill up the cup, so to speak. They all help to contribute to it. So 100% commitment to the church. And that means we talk early to our children about, and I'll, talk, I'll come back to this a little bit later on, we share the gospel very early with our kids. Jesus seemed to have a fond heart for children. I have a fond heart for children. I've shared the gospel with my children as early as possible. When I believe my children have made a genuine profession of faith, I strongly encourage them to be baptized. This is probably one of the most common parenting questions I actually have had, if I add up all the questions I've had over the years, is what age should I baptize my child? When they're saved. When they've made a profession of faith. Well, shouldn't they have to prove it? No, that's not, that's not what baptism's for. Sometimes we confuse the discipleship process with baptism. Baptism is the first step that a person takes when they've confessed their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They don't have to know a whole lot more. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Yes. Did he die for you? Are you sure? Yes. Are you just saying this because I believe it? No, I believe it. You qualify. Get them baptized. So baptism, I would just say anecdotally that I find most children by the age of six are functioning in such a way that they can be pretty clear with you on where they stand in terms of faith matters. So if the kid's under six, sometimes I do admittedly get a little nervous because I'm just not sure they understand. Something happens in grade one. And so I've always felt very comfortable baptizing kids who have professed their faith from about, about the age of six onwards. Secondly, attendance. Again, I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. But um, attendance and participation in the life of a local church is absolutely essential. Okay? 
Big problem. Let's identify it. What's the problem with church attendance today? You tell me. What have you noticed? What's the trend? Mm -hmm. Sports takes priority. What else? What's the attendance patterns like? Yeah, so two or three years here, two or three years there, two or three years there, yeah. Pardon me? Okay, so that would be the extreme, right? But we're here for the, the humps in the life of the church, never for the lows. So, you know, the old Christmas and Easter Christian, right? Here's the mindset that I think too many, not all, not even most, but too many Christians have. We will always be in church unless there's something else that we're doing. So what is that? that? That makes church the secondary priority. We're always going to be there unless something else has taken place. So I would just encourage you as parents to ask this simple question. When was the last time you said no to something else just because you felt it was important to be in church? As opposed to, when was the last time you said no to church because something else came up? So don't underestimate the, the simple, simple, simplest acts of discipling people. And I think this is one of the simplest, most basic aspects of the Christian life. And that is being in, involved in the life of a church on a regular, habitual basis. Then, of course, service. Susie and I have sought to model this because I, I think service is the primary display of Christian humility. I'm going to preach on this a little bit more on Sunday. I'm a little tired of people framing up humility simply as an attitude. It's 99.9% of times in the Bible, humility has nothing to do with your attitude. It has to do with your actions. It has to do with what you do for other people. And it revolves around service. The humble person serves. So we serve in the church. Obviously, Susie and I serve in the church. And um, we encourage all of our kids from the time of their baptism to serve in Christian ministry. And because we modeled that with the, early, the older kids early on, we never even had to... I've never even talked to Abby about it. I've never talked to Simon about it. They just do it. They just get involved in things. They just find areas of service. Good starting places are being a helper in Sunday school, serving in the nursery, showing up to kids' camp and helping make crafts with smaller children, sweeping floors, making lunches. So that's a seasonal ministry, but there's also lots of other areas to serve. Really, really important to model service. I'll tell you a quick story. Several years ago, we had a situation arise in our church where um, some people wanted to take a bunch of our youth on a mission trip. Remember when like New Orleans was wiped out and for several years there was you know, devastation down there and houses that all needed to be rebuilt. Well, the interesting thing is that corresponded to the time when we were renovating this building just to try to get into it. And it was like, if you saw pictures before, like it was pretty hideous, this building. So we're here. I was working like 80 hours a week, like splitting pastoral time with renovations. We had construction crews here just from the church. We're doing all this stuff. And a lot of people showed up and some people just never showed up. Like, ever. And um, the, probably the most conspicuous group that never showed up was the youth group. And so I get this request from the youth department, we want to go and renovate houses in New Orleans. In my carnality, I was furious. Because I was thinking, oh, you want to go do something sexy down in New Orleans. 
but we're here like every night busting our humps. And you're not even here, well, we don't know how to do it. Push a broom. Okay, if someone can put up drywall, but you can't pick up the drywall pieces. So I just realized at that point how, how important it is to, to help young people to understand that service is not sexy. And the best kind of service is this habitual, regular, low attention, not a lot of accolades for it kind of service. That's what builds character in people's lives. So I would strongly recommend to you as a parent that you help your children see the priority of service among the people of God. So that's the first one. The second one is fellowship. We love having people over to our homes. Sometimes we just have people over because we want to know, get to know them better. Other times we have people over that we deliberately want our children to be exposed to. Like we want our kids to get to know these people. This is a quality couple or a quality family. And we want our children to start to build relationships with them. You might have heard even from um, your upbringing of families that deliberately host missionaries. For example, I, I put my little spiel in on Sunday for those of you to, who want to host to host uh, kids from the Czech Republic. This is not just a, oh, well, they're, they're needing a place to stay. This is an opportunity for you to expose people from a different country that don't know Jesus to your kids. Give your kids opportunity to minister and show them that mom and dad are committed to hospitality. It's a, it's, it's a huge win. It's a huge win for you as parents to have people over into your home, over to your homes. Being involved in small groups, really, really important. Um, obviously, if they're really small and they cry a lot, they may not be suitable for a small group because they may be mildly distracting. But if there's a way of including, especially elementary school age kids in the small groups that you're part of, I would encourage that. We did that for many, many years and we found that that was super helpful for our kids to get to know other adults. And then of course, our youth groups. So we have middle school groups here at the church. We have senior high group and we have a college age group. And I've always strongly encouraged my kids to be part of that. Now, I have had parents ask me on occasion, what if your kid doesn't want to go? I don't really know how to answer that question, to be honest, because I never had that problem. But I will tell you this. I think the primary reason why we never had that problem is because we always talked it up, talked it up, talked it up years before they were allowed to go in it. So I remember every one of my kids being like in grade four, oh, I wish I could go into middle school. Sorry, you got to wait. Grade five, oh, I wish I could go into middle school. Too bad. But the youth leader says I can come out. You're not going. You're not in grade six yet. And I want them to like want to be there. And then it's like, wow, it's a rite of passage. I get to be in middle school. So I've never had to tell my kids to go to youth group. Same when they're coming into grade eight. Oh, I'm the biggest, you know, Simon, I'm the biggest kid. Why can't I go up? You know, I, all my buddies are in grade nine or 10. Too bad. You're not going early. My youth leader says I could go. No, you're not going early. You're waiting. You have to get through grade eight. I want them to want to be in it. So that's just a little parenting tip for you. Like talk it up in advance. Make them want to be there. You should never have, have to go to your kids and say, could you please go? I really think it'd be good for you. Hold them back, hold them back, hold them back. And then when you let them go, they're going to want to be there. But you also got to then, of course, um, talk about it positively. Third, we get them giving early. So I, I told you this last week um, with our kids. So I'll just write some of these words down. So we have fellowship and tithing 
I was talking to a young man many years ago. He was graduating from university, and I was talking to him about giving or something. I made some comment. Well, you better be giving. He's like, well, I'm not done school yet. That's a red light for me right there. Okay. When Josiah made $8 a week, he gave 80 cents. I wanted him to learn that right away. So I told you this before, for those of you that weren't here, um, we always encourage our kids 50% 50, 50 to savings, 40% for spending, and 10% to ministry okay and that's your that's your starting place we taught our kids that from the age as soon as they had a job Josiah started his first penny saver out when he was eight and I saw his tax receipt this year sitting on the table and he's beyond that and he's in Bible college so I'm just bragging on him a little bit he's beyond that and he's in Bible college paying tuition so these are some this is something that we taught our kids really early it gives them a high view of the church and a high view of uh, the importance of being generous. Getting them serving early on, I kind of touched on that under involvement, but getting kids to serve early on, welcome. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming. Getting them serving early on is really, really important. Okay, number five. One of the things that I think has been the most helpful for our kids is talking openly about church life. So. We ask questions of our kids, and maybe some of you might find these a little bit strange or awkward, but I think they've been really important. We've asked our kids questions like, um, how are things going in the youth group? Who would you say are some of the stronger spiritual leaders in your youth group? Who are some of the kids that uh, are struggling in the youth group? Um, have there been any new kids out lately? Yeah. Did you talk to them? Oh, uh, no. Well, why, did, why wouldn't you talk to them? Okay, Dad, I'll do a better job. I'll, I'll go talk to them. Or something's going on in the life of our church. Maybe some tragedy like we've had recently in our church. We talk to our kids openly about that kind of stuff. It's really, really important if you're going to have a high view of church and the Christian life to get your kids thinking about critical issues early on. So I, I, I know that this may kind of rub against some of your backgrounds, but I've never been a believer in dividing subjects into adult subjects and kids subjects. I will talk to my kids about anything and everything as early as possible. I just might not share all the details that I would share with an adult, but I talk about all the subjects. So sexuality, we talk to our kids about sexuality very early on, but obviously the younger they are, the less detail they get. You get more detail as you get older. Struggles and challenges in people's lives. We talk about those kinds of things early on. My children had an uncle that took his own life many years ago. We took them to the funeral. We talked openly about that kind of stuff. And one of the reasons why I felt exposing my kids to death and the sad reality of death early on was really important is because I, I remember when my grandfather and grandmother died. My grandmother died in 1977. I was four. And I remember being so offended and hurt that I had to sit in the car in the parking lot with my grandmother. And I remember she tried to pacify me with this little blue candy that she had in her purse. I still remember that. I was so offended that I wasn't able to participate in my grandmother's funeral. But six months later, my grandfather died. And they allowed me to go to his funeral. I felt so proud to be part of that. 
Now, I understand that I was one of the older kids. My parents were still trying to sort that stuff out. But my perspective has always been, I, will ex I have no problem exposing my kids to the sad realities of life as early as possible. As early as possible. I think that's really, really important. So we talk openly about church life, the trials, the joys, the struggles. Obviously, I'm not going to tell my kids about someone I'm counseling or some situation that's going on that's confidential. But my kids know very well about the struggles and difficulties that um, I've gone through. And I was so blessed today, my son Josiah sent me an excerpt from a leadership paper he wrote at school. And um, apparently in this paper, he was asked to comment on someone who was influential in his life. And he wrote about me. I was just super blessed by it. And out of the many things that he wrote, he mentioned in there how he is, he's observed his father go through all kinds of deep and difficult challenges in ministry. That kind of popped out at me because I'm thinking, oh, it's interesting he's aware of that and how I've you know, been able with God's strength to work through that. And I'm thinking that's a win for him and it's a win for me. He, know, he knows a little bit more about ministry. He's seen how I've responded or not responded well to circumstances and he's been able to learn from that. So I would say pretty much every subject is um, game for a discussion with your kids. You just have to determine how much detail. And then, uh, I'm a big believer in encouraging my kids to be discipled by others. One of my biggest blessings, I told you this last week, but one of my biggest blessings as a father in this church is seeing other people take an interest in my kids. I absolutely and totally love that. I love it when other adults take an interest in my kids. My kids hang out, half their friends are like adults in the church. I love that. Where my daughters will go off, they'll go for coffee, they'll go for sleepovers with adults in the church. My sons have always had guys in their lives that are like older than them. And that was super helpful for me too. I, I grew up in a home where dad had left when I was 10. We moved around a lot. And in every church, there was always one or two guys that kind of became my surrogate fathers and really took an interest in my life. And I was so blessed by that. So I love seeing other people take an interest in my kids. So I would say don't discourage that. Encourage your kids to talk to adults at church. So you go talk to them. Have a conversation with them. Have those people over to your home so your kids can get to know them. Encourage the village to help you dis disciple your children for Christ. Here are some obstacles that I think stand in the way. Um, just going back to this issue of being regular in church attendance. So we're just kind of identifying things that you already know, but here are some obstacles that I think stand in the way. Well, our family lives out of town. That can be an excuse. That's great. Tell your family to come on Saturdays, or you're going to visit them Friday and Saturday. Susie and I know exactly what that's like. We moved to Windsor when we're, we'd been married for a year and a half, Neither side of our families lived in this area, but we'd, we made a commitment to our kids. We're going to call Windsor our home. We're going to think of it as our home. We're going to act like this is our home. This is our home. We're never going to say we're going home for the weekend, and we're not going to abandon our church to go and see mom and dad because there's six other days of the week that we can do that. Obviously, sickness is a legitimate reason to miss church. Um, sports is occasionally... Sorry to step on toes. I would say, uh, please don't be personally offended. I'm not thinking of any specific person. 
But I would say the number one fumble that Christian parents make today is enrolling their kids in Sunday sports. I would say that's like the top most worst decision you could do as a parent. It's like the worst decision. And I've heard people say, well, that's when the sports are. Okay, well, when I hear like 500 Christians tell me they got to pull their kids out of church to play hockey on Sunday mornings, you know what comes to my mind? That's about the right number of people to start a Saturday league. If there's such a huge interest, start a Saturday league. But I would just say to you, if you enroll your kids in um, sports on Sundays that takes them away from the life of the church, you probably have just reduced by about 50% the likelihood that your child will be walking with the Lord as an adult. How do I know that? I've been a pastor for 25 years. So those little 13 and 14-year-olds in my junior high group, 25 years ago, how old are they now? They're like 38-ish now. So I, I, I know them. I know some of them. And I could pretty much track, there's obviously some exceptions to the rules, the kids that were consistent and regular are doing well. As a general rule, the kids whose parents were more not as committed are not doing so well. I remember standing in a banquet line at a church I was in several years ago. And one of the young people who was probably one of our brightest kids, like he was, you're doing Bible studies. He's like, he had the best answers, the best questions. I just saw like a boatload of potential in him. His father wasn't a believer. So he was already starting off in a deficit. His mom was a believer, but she came up to me and she said, I really appreciate the influence that you've had on my son. I'm thinking, okay, this is a compliment. This is good. Thank you for that. But one of the concerns I have is you're encouraging him to be in church and we want him to become a soccer player. And I thought she was kidding me. And so I kind of made a joke about it. She's like, no, like I'd appreciate if he didn't invite him out to youth group and kind of press him to be in church so much because we want him to be a soccer player. And I just looked at her and I said, I, I didn't move to Windsor to pastor in this church to make soccer players, not opposed to soccer. But that's not why I came. She's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That kid, I just talked to my uh, brother who, who, who bumped into him recently. He's like, man in his 30s, he's an absolute and total train wreck. Total train wreck. On multiple fronts. I mean, he's, he's, not even a, he's not moral, much less even remotely Christian. And that's just one example of many I could point to where the parents are like, well, sports is morally neutral, right? Yeah. But what are you communicating when you're saying coming together and worshiping collectively with God's people is what we do when we don't have anything else going on? It's a huge mistake. You guys catching my drift on this? So I'm just going to say this. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But if you do not heed my counsel on this, 10 years from now, you will, 99% of you will come to me and say, I regretted that decision. That's how how much of a believer I am at this point. This is not even like a gray area for me. You put your kids in Sunday sports, you've just dramatically reduced the likelihood of them being a, a diehard follower of Jesus Christ as an adult. Dramatically reduced it. Uh, identify, identify uh, so this is obstacles. So identify them and tackle the ones you are responsible for. So when you have challenges in 
raising kids, so they don't want to be in church, or they don't want to tithe, or they don't want to serve, or they're not interested in talking about church life. Well, try to identify the ones that they are most likely to be interested in and just work on those. Have conversations with them on those points. Drive home those points. Come back time and time again and encourage them in the areas where they're showing some interest. I would say with regard to attendance, uh, a good rule of thumb would be to not be away from your home church more than eight Sundays a year. I think that's pretty generous. So you're going to be away two, three, four, five, six weeks, maybe for vacation. There's going to be a couple of weeks where you wake up and you have the flu or you have to be out of town. But I, I think, and this is just anecdotal, I thought about this a lot. I think that um, being in church somewhere between 80 and 85% of the time is still being habitual about it. When you start dropping below that, you know, you're, you're there three weeks out of four, then two weeks out of four, then one week out of four. You're not being habitual about it. In fact, I would just say it's a violation of Hebrews 10.25. What's Hebrews 10.25? Do not forsake the... What is it? Yeah, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. And then what, is, what does it say after that? As some are in the habit... It's a habit. So holy habits, getting into routines, is really important. I have learned that kids, especially when they're really young, are imprinted by routines and schedules. Routines and schedules. So they have to be good routines and good schedules. But they're imprinted by good routines and good schedules. So that means mom and dad have to model what they want their kids to model. So the first step of teaching someone is to model it. And then the second step is answering the question, why? So when they're really young, you just take them to church. You just take them to church. You just take them to church. All you're doing is you're modeling it. As they start getting a little older, you start explaining to them why. Why? Why is this important? Why is this important? If you model it but don't explain the why, when they're older and they run into a road bump, they're not going to continue in it because they don't know why. But if you model it and you explain why, why is this a priority? Why do you think we take you to church regularly? Why do we make this a priority? That's going to stick. It's going to help them to see the importance of being uh, involved in the life of a church regularly. So just to recap, 100% committed, making sure that you are heavily involved in fellowship in the life of a church, super important, getting your kids to give serve early, talking openly about church life, not just the joys, but also the sorrows. Not just the joys, but also the sorrows. And encouraging them to be discipled by others. And, and some of those discipling relationships will just naturally rise up the more your kids are around the building. Right? Uh, if you're one of those people that shows up two minutes after the service starts and leaves after the sermon and before the final song, which, by the way, drives our worship leaders crazy. Crazy. It drives them nuts. When people leave after the sermon, they're like, nobody thinks what we do is important. <laughs> but if you're one of those people that comes a little late, leaves early, you'll never build relationships. 
Stay around for a little bit. Chat with people. Let your kids mingle. Let them get to know other people. It's, it's a huge benefit to them. I think, obviously, the fact that I work in the church, my kids have been forced to do that. And maybe when they were younger, there was times, like, Dad, can we go? Can we go? But it's not like that anymore, because mm-hmm. most of them drive to church. They make their own plans. Sometimes they're here longer than I am. So that's been a blessing. All right. So the next category I want to talk about is instruction and discipline. On occasion, people say, what, what's your perspective on discipline? And I say, okay, that's, we'll talk about that, but could we maybe broaden the subject and talk about instruction and discipline? Because I think discipline really is just a part of instruction. Discipline tends to be more of a negative word, right? Instruction's a positive word. Hopefully we're doing more of the positive than the negative. If we're doing a lot of good instruction, hopefully, hopefully we're reducing the amount of discipline we have to do. So a few thoughts on instruction and discipline. Discipline without instruction, I would say, is at least mildly abusive. If you're going to correct someone's behavior, but you've never instructed them in proper behavior, it's kind of unfair to discipline them. So starting with instruction and making instruction your greatest priority is not only going to reduce the amount of discipline you have to do, but it's also going to make your discipline fair. Because when they are disciplined, they're like, okay, I know why. Because I violated mom or dad's instruction. So being clear with your kids, obviously on what God's word teaches and basic categories of Christian morality is important. Explaining to your kids expectations for conduct in the home expectations for how they treat you, expectations for how they treat one another. Just being very clear on those. And then stating them again, and then again, and then again. Um, I would say that one of my biggest frustrations as a father over the years is having to repeat myself. And it still is at times. But I also know it's part of growing up. Okay, for the 400th time. Stop leaving backpacks on the stairs. I'm going to break my neck in the middle of the night coming down for a glass of water. Stop doing it. It's like a conversation we had the other night. If you come in the house and you throw your coat on the back of one of the chairs and then you leave it there the whole night, someone has to remove it because we're going to have dinner there. Like, put the thing away. So it's frustrating. I'm sure you've had many situations like that as well. But what I won't be guilty of is having never told them. I'll have told them. And then I'll tell them again and again and again and again. So then, having told them, I can then discipline them. But if I don't tell them, then I can't discipline them. So instruct first, make that your priority, and then move to discipline. Now discipline, in my way of thinking, is composed of probably four or five things. So, the, the first one I wrote down, most of these are R words. In fact, four, four of them are R words. So, there's routine. So, let's think of discipline positively. Before I discipline correctively, I want to help them to be disciplined positively. So, dis- disciplining them in healthy habits, getting them into healthy habits 
is really important as a parent. Those healthy habits can include everything from their diet, to their hygiene, to their homework, to their church involvement, to how they speak with you, to how they speak with their siblings. Getting into routines is really, really important. Kids thrive, especially when they're younger, on routines. Having established routines, then you move into reminders and reinforcement. You're reminding, you're reminding, you're reinforcing, you're reminding, you're reminding. This is where I think a lot of parents fall flat in their face. They say, don't do that. And the kid doesn't do it. So they're like, oh. would you stop saying that? And the kid says it. Oh, and they just walk away. Now, you, you remember being a child. Remember the, the infamous substitute teacher? Right? We always abuse the substitute teacher. Why? Because they had no capacity to reinforce anything beyond that period that they had us or beyond that day that they had us, right? We tend to immediately attack or disrespect weakness. Animals do it and humans do it. Your children will test you. They'll test you. They'll test your limits. And especially if you're a grace person, how many of you would say you're more of a grace person than a law person? You will be wearing a very large target as a parent. Your kids will test you. They will test you. They will test you. And as soon as you issue a proclamation and then don't reinforce that, they have won and you have lost, but eventually they're going to be losers. So it's vitally important if you were going to issue an edict, a decree, an instruction, how much latitude, percentage-wise, how much latitude do you think is reasonable to give kids when a parent has issued an instruction? The correct answer is zero. No exceptions. So I'll give you an example that I gave in a sermon a couple weeks ago. Someone asked me recently, like, how often would your kids say no to you? The answer to that is never. Never. Really? Why would I let them say no to me? That's, it's about as likely that they would say that to me as they would use the F word in my presence. I just don't give any latitude on that. And if you establish that in the early years, then, then it will just continue on and it actually gets easier. The easiest phase that I've ever had raising kids is teenagers. People are like, oh, teenagers are so difficult. Not for me. Teenagers has, has, has been very easy compared to those early years because I cracked the whip when they were young. I set those standards. I established the boundaries. Now, that's not to say that if you're kind of trying to drift into some of these things and you have teenagers that there's not hope for you, but a lot of us lose in the teen years because we don't reinforce in the childhood years. So what are some of the reasons why we don't reinforce? in the childhood years? Easy. What else? Tired. Tell me about it. Five kids under six and a half. What else? Too busy. Yeah. Busy, busy, busy. Busy is not always better. What else? How about fear of not being liked? Maybe you had a heavy-handed mother or father and you don't really want to be that to your kids, so the pendulum swings, right? This way. 
understand the reasons why you may not gravitate toward strong reinforcement. Now, here's another problem. Mom and dad have different parenting styles. Okay, simple advice on that. Go see your church and see it really early. Go talk to your church. If your marriage is disunited because mom or dad are not on the same page in the area of discipline, but you bury it because you want to save face, you don't want other people to know, you don't want to call your husband, you don't want to call it your wife, then you're going to have a problem. So this is where the church comes in. We're all about discipling each other in the faith. And if there's a problem in the home, obviously you don't have to come and tell someone about it or get counsel on it if it's happened like twice and it's like six months apart. But if it's a, if it's a problem, if it's a routine, you should all be in small groups by now. And your small group is a place to bring that up. And you want your small group leader to be of assistance to you. If they can't deal with it, you know our routine. You go to the flock group leader. If the flock group leader can't handle it, you go to one of our biblical counselors. But make sure you do not leave any room for um, any disobedience. Now, let's to counterbalance that, I would say don't have a rule for everything. So give your kids a lot of areas of freedom. A lot of areas of freedom. One example of that is like hairstyles or dress. That's not so much of an issue today, but you all remember if you grew up in the like the 60s, 70s, or 80s, you know, the kid with the blue hair, the kid with the pink hair, the kid with the punk rocker clothes or whatever it might have been at the time, and all the old people flipped out. I couldn't care less about stuff like that. I couldn't care less about stuff like that. I'm not going to die on hills that aren't biblical hills. I'm going to give my kids flexibility and latitude on all kinds of things, but the core issues I will give them like zero flexibility on. And not only does that make my parenting simpler, but it helps my kids to see what I think is important and what I don't think is important. I've never been like, for instance, um, a rule guy, like a strict rule guy on what kind of movies you should watch. I just think that's, I give them guidelines at times I've said, yeah, I don't want you watching that. But I don't parent like in little micro categories. Don't ever watch an R-rated movie. Why not? Some R-rated movies are better than some PG movies. I want you to exercise some discretion. If I pull the plug on you, I have latitude to do that. Um, but I, I give my kids flexibility on things that I don't think are really that important. But I give them zero flexibility on things that I think are really, really important. So we have routines. Reminders, reinforcement, rewards. You reward good behavior. Early on, I think you should reward tangibly, more often than not. And as the kids get older, you reward them verbally. So tangibly when you're young. Here's a candy. Here's a bowl of Fruit Loops. Whatever it might be. Yes, you can watch cartoons. But as the kids get older, forget that. I just tend to reward my kids verbally. I just brag on them express my love for them, tell them I'm proud of them for whatever it might be, because that's adult life, right? Most of us are not getting bowls of Cheerios, <laughs> you know, and we do something right. We're having someone say, hey, I appreciate what you did today. That was really beneficial for me. So I, I moved them into adult rewards. And then punishment that's age appropriate. So punishment that's age appropriate. So early on, um, you tend to move your kids around physically more, right? Um, so you're, can I use you as an example, Phil? Okay, so why don't you come on up here, man. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, people just kind of just bend over. (laughs) So, um, when kids are little, I have no problem with stop that or cut it out or a cuff in the head or a, can I? Sure. (laughs) Uh, You know, one of these, right? Now, my goal is not to inflict physical pain. If there's a little bit of physical pain, that's great. But it's kind of like, have you ever raised a dog, disciplined a dog? You don't start off with, sit, sit. doesn't know what that word means. You push its butt down, you position it, and then you're like, sit. Then it gets up, sit, right? It does something bad, you give it a whack. Your goal is not to um, injure the animal, but physicality okay, has a role to play in our development. When you grab someone like that, especially if you're a, 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 an adult and you grab a little kid, that is a positive way of teaching them. That like, gets their attention. It's very kinesthetic, right? And, but when they get older, like I, I would never like, grab my sons. I just think that would be like super weird. I would never spank my daughters. I would never grab them by the ear. Like it's been many years since I've done any of that. But when they're little, I think that's an appropriate way at their age level to discipline them, to kind of get a little physical with them, right? So thanks, Phil, for putting yourself on the spot. I won't do it again. Yeah, okay, good. So um, punishment that's age appropriate. So when they're little, more kinesthetic, more physical, stop it. Cut it out. Sit down. Come here. Go there. You cut that out. Separate them. You know, that kind of stuff. It's a bit more physically aggressive, but it's not abusive. As they get older, it starts to become more verbal. Cut it out. If you do that again, you're going to get. When they become teenagers, I would say the number one um, most effective way of punishing is through the removal of opportunities. I think that, I would say that's absolutely the most important thing. And they, they should be, in the mind of the teenager, kind of severe, right? Because hopefully by the time they're teenagers, you're not disciplining them as often as when they're kids. Kids, you might be doing like 10 times a day. Middle school, maybe once or twice a week. Teenagers, hopefully like not too often. But um, take your heart. Okay, because I, I might come across as tough at times, but I'm actually very soft-hearted toward my kids. So I just take my heart, and I just put it over there, and I use my mind, and I discipline them. So, severely. If the, I'm, I'm generally only disciplining severely because um, I've emphasized so much that you do what I tell you to do. Okay? So I've just established that. So there's a high level of respect for parental authority in the home. So therefore, there's few opportunities for discipline. When those opportunities do arise, the consequences are usually severe. Why? Because I'm reinforcing the baseline truth, which is you do what I tell you to do. And what's my latitude on that? Zero. So, I am your benevolent dictator until you move out of my house. No apologies for that at all. I am your loving 
father who's your dictator. When I say jump, you say how high, okay? Might sound like old school, it works, okay? Not your coach, not your suggester. The Christian parent is a benevolent dictator to their, to their children that are in the home. That's the, that's the model that works. So I might say to my kid, okay, you do that again, and like you're off Netflix for like four months. Like a week is nothing. You're done, four months. If I catch you doing that, I have a vice and a ball-peen hammer in my garage. I'm not going to use it on you, but I'm going to use it on your cell phone. Okay? So very strict. Uh, Levi, I'll give you an example. He kept leaving his wet towel on the floor. Wet towel on the floor. Kept telling him over and over again. It's on the carpet floor, so then the carpet's wet. I, I warned him. I said, you do it again, and you owe me 200 bucks. Okay? And then I backed off a little bit. I said, you owe me 100 bucks. Right? So I charged, I fined him $100 for like time number 20. You owe me $100. Does that hurt when you're like 15, 16? Oh, yeah. He's never done it again. Okay? So the 100 bucks was, was worth it for me, less stress for me. I've just said to my kids, it's unfair for you to put me in a position where I have to ask you over and over again. Totally unfair. It's disrespectful to me as a human and as your father. Why should I spend my life thinking on your behalf? Why should I spend my life reminding you of what you need to remember? So the consequences are severe, right? He didn't like it. I to I, when I filled up my Suburban with that $100 and I told him that he'd paid for it, he didn't like it. But um, severe consequences, but very rarely. But if they, if they happen, severe. One of my sons is screwing around in math class. I know what he's capable of. I said to him, if you don't pull up your mark by 15%, the re by the end of this semester, you're off TV for a year, dude. Okay? That's a severe consequence. Okay? He will do very well this year in math. Okay? <laughs> It has to be severe enough that there's absolutely no way they will forget it. Okay? What you can do, you can always throttle back later on. You can always say like two months and you know I've been doing well, I'm going to throttle back. But um, starting off too light, that's not an incentive. Okay? These kids have more than we did when we were growing up. Okay? So um, we have to you know, be, be pretty um, straightforward with them about that. And really at the end of the day, this is the way I view it. Them being on off Netflix or off TV is actually a blessing. It's not really even a punishment. They just think it is. So I kill two birds with one stone. They think I'm punishing them. They feel like they're being punished. They act differently. But I also get them away from something that really isn't all that productive anyway.